Uh, I'd invite you this morning to open your copy of God's Word. I hope you brought it with you. If not, there ought to be a copy uh, under your seat or under the seat in front of you. Open it to the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, If you were here last week, you know that uh, for the remainder of November, uh, this week and next week again, uh, we have moved our occasional Sunday evening uh, uh, sermon series to Sunday mornings. And so uh, we are taking broad looks, big 30,000 foot views of some Old Testament books, particularly Old Testament books of wisdom. Last week, we, we took a, a bird's eye view of Proverbs. This week, we'll take a bird's eye view of Ecclesiastes. If you need help finding Ecclesiastes in your Bible, again, just kind of open it to the middle. If you find yourself in Psalms or Proverbs, turn a few pages to the right till you get to Ecclesiastes. It's about 12 chapters long. Um, I don't know, about 10 or 12 pages in my Bible. If you were to sit down and read Ecclesiastes all the way through in one sitting, it might take you maybe 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how quickly and how closely you read. A relatively short book that uh, I will say is most Christians, well, not their favorite book of the Bible to read, and you'll see why in just a few moments. If Ecclesiastes is not your least favorite book, Leviticus probably is, and Ecclesiastes is number two right behind that. I hope that changes a little bit by the end of this morning. Uh, I had uh, another uh, birthday last week, and uh, uh, I don't know what's so happy about it, but thank you. Um, Had another birthday, getting a little bit older. And every year on my birthday, I'll, I, I do this thing. Maybe you're like me and your own, you, you are your own worst critic about everything that happens in your life. And I will, on, on my birthday, I'll just kind of run through the reel of everything that I've done in my life and, and hold myself up against other people of the similar age and the things that they have done and accomplished. And, uh, and I'll look at just another year gone by and go, what was the point of all that? Some of you, like me, are glass half empty folks. You tend to be a little more pessimistic. And that's, uh, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist. I'm just a realist. There's, there's half the water missing. Some of you are optimists. The, uh, the glass is half full. Some of you are eternal optimists. The glass is all the way full. It's half full of water, half full of air, as my brother Ken told me last week. <laughs> Praise God for you. We need eternal optimists like that. Ecclesiastes is kind of like me on my birthday. Ecclesiastes is kind of like the glass half empty person. What's the point of all of it? And you get that tone very heavily through the whole course of this Old Testament book of wisdom. Hopefully you received a Uh, a note guide that you can follow along in this morning. There'll be some notes to take in there if you want to fill in some blanks. Those will appear on the screen as we move through our study of Ecclesiastes this morning. But as we move into this overview of this book of Ecclesiastes, uh, this sermon I've subtitled The End of the Matter because that's kind of how the author of Ecclesiastes ends the book in chapter 12. This is the end of the matter. This is the point after considering all of these things, here's the conclusion, and we'll get there in due time. Well, as we think about these books from a broad 30,000-foot view, from a bird's-eye view, we, we want to look, first of all, at some of the particulars about the book. We want to kind of set it in its context, understand what's going on here. The first question that we often ask is, who's the human author uh, of this book of the Bible? We know that God is the ultimate author through His Holy Spirit of all Scripture, but Scripture is also written down by faithful men inspired by the Holy Spirit. So who's the human author of Ecclesiastes? It's a hard question to answer. In the book of Ecclesiastes itself, there is no personal author named. 
Uh, the author names himself the preacher or the teacher. In Hebrew, the word is Kohelet. And actually, that's the Hebrew name uh, of this book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Bible. It's just called Kohelet. I will refer to the author of Ecclesiastes as Kohelet as we move through the sermon this morning. And some of you may be a little frustrated with that, and that's okay. Because you've read in certain parts of Ecclesiastes, like chapter 1, verse 1, that, this, that these are the words of the preacher who is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And immediately we think... The author must be Solomon. He was David's son. He was the king in Jerusalem. And Solomon could be the author. It's it's possible, although the book itself of Ecclesiastes does not say. Proverbs, as we saw last week, there are a few places it says, you know, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Solomon wrote these down. Solomon collected these things. But Solomon's name is not mentioned explicitly in the course of Ecclesiastes. There are some other issues in Ecclesiastes that make us wonder if maybe the, the writer, the preacher, Koheleth, is maybe not Solomon himself, but maybe a later king in Israel. It's hard to say uh, uh, for certain. If you want to hold to the tradition that Solomon's the author of Ecclesiastes, I won't hold that against you. Um, and I hope that you won't hold it against me that I say, I don't know for sure. If Solomon is the author, though, then the writing of Ecclesiastes would probably have been near the end of his reign, somewhere around the year 930 B.C. or so. Clearly, the author of Ecclesiastes is an old man later in his life reflecting on all of his pursuits in life and what he has learned from them. It could be Solomon near the end of his reign. Some scholars of the Old Testament prefer to date the final writing of Ecclesiastes to the period following the return from exile of the people uh, uh, of Judah from, from Babylon back to the land of Israel. Again, it's hard to say for sure which is which, but we have this book to us by God's providence and in his wisdom. If I were to summarize Ecclesiastes for you this morning in just a couple of sentences, I would do it this way. I would say that Ecclesiastes is a reflection on the purpose and the meaning of life from the perspective of Kohelet, the author, the preacher, as an old man. You need to read Ecclesiastes as the words of an old man imparting wisdom to those who are behind him. After seeking out meaning through wisdom and work and pleasure and wealth, Kohelet finds almost all things to be vanity and is striving after the wind. Everything is empty, worthless, meaningless, pointless, vain. It's only the person, as we'll see as we get toward chapter 12, it's only the person who fears the Lord that can rightly enjoy and find ultimate purpose in living. Now, there are several themes throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I would point out three to us this morning. First, you could trace this all the way through. Life is full of vain pursuits, empty pursuits, worthless, breathy pursuits. Second, the fall. And by the fall, I don't mean this wonderful season of, uh, of the year in New Mexico. The fall, the, the, the uh, fall into sin that, that began with our first parents, Adam and Eve, where they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good, of good and evil, which God had forbidden them to, uh, from, from eating from. They fall from relationship with God. They break fellowship with God in that moment of sin. And their sinfulness is transmitted spiritually to us like a spiritual genetic defect. All of us are born sinners and we will sin at the moment of first opportunity. And that sin, that has not only broken fellowship with God, but also has broken the way that the world is designed or was meant by God to work, if we would have lived in righteous obedience of Him, the fall, sin, affects everything. Everything's broken. Meaninglessness exists because of the fall. Third major theme, fear of God alone is what provides real purpose in life. 
And by fear of God, we don't mean, again, terror of this old man with a long white beard in the sky who's just ready to throw lightning bolts at you the first time you displease him. No, we mean fear of God in the sense of awe, wonder, worship of God who reigns in holiness and perfection from heaven. As we think about Ecclesiastes and where it fits, how it relates to the whole story that God is telling of redemption throughout all of the Bible, from creation in the garden all the way to consummation when Christ comes again to call the church to himself. The book of Ecclesiastes centers solely around, or, or, or at least most, most prominently around that theme, around that part of redemption history that we know as the fall. It affects everything. Sin makes, fills the world with meaninglessness and vain pursuits. So if you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to draw a circle or a box or underline that word fall as you have that progression, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Ecclesiastes is really concerned with the fall and its effects on our life as human beings. Now, as you read Ecclesiastes this week, just for encouragement ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday, you'll, you'll do well to remember that Ecclesiastes falls into this genre of literature called wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Wisdom literature, as we said last week, it defies soundbite theology. Uh, you can't read any wisdom book of the Old Testament. You can't just pluck out a verse and say, oh, this is wisdom. Wisdom literature, by its nature, requires the reader to requires us to read all of it and only make conclusions when we get to the end, because there are sometimes things that appear in wisdom literature um, that come out of the mouth of a fool or the mouth of a of a senseless person. And if we take that and just pluck it out and say, "Well, the Bible says, you know, that it's good to I don't know cheat on your wife," and we don't take any consideration for the fact that those are the words that come out of the mouth of a fool in scripture, then we totally misunderstood it, right? So when you read Ecclesiastes, try to read it all the way through. And, and that's going to take some endurance. I know for some of you glass half full people, because it's going to feel like drudgery for you glass half empty people like me. Ecclesiastes might be a joy. You might be going, finally, someone in the Bible understands me. But when you read this book, you need to ask yourself a few questions. Keep these in mind. First of all, What is this text? What is this piece of wisdom literature? What is it telling me about God and his character? What is this revealing to me about the creator of all things? Second, what is this text? What is this book teaching me about who I am, about my nature, what I am like, whether I want to admit it or not? Third, ask the question, how does this text, how does this book instruct me to live in light of these truths, in light of who God is and who I am? How how ought I to live? And finally, how does this text call me to trust God? How does, it trust me to, how, how does it call me to worship Him? How does it call me to give my life over to Him? That's the, the point, the purpose of wisdom literature, to teach us these things. Now, Ecclesiastes is, is infamously difficult to outline. There's, there's not a, a real clear progression uh, of, of kind of arguments all the way through the book. Uh, I looked at a few other resources this week, and every resource outlines it differently. So I've just given a very simple outline of Ecclesiastes for you. There's the prologue in chapter 1, kind of an introduction to all of the fun that awaits you. Then there's in chapters 2 through 6, the search for meaning. Kohelet describes all the things that he's chased after to bring meaning into his life. Then third, in chapter 7 through 11, you have wisdom from Kohelet. Wisdom for those who are also searching. For, for, for meaning in life. And then in chapter 12, we have the conclusion, the epilogue. The end of the matter is this, he says. So having set this up is possibly the most encouraging sermon that you've ever heard in your life. 
we'll just jump right into it. Uh, I'd invite you this morning, take your copy of God's Word, hold it in your hands, stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word. Just a few verses from Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 1. There we read, these are the words of the preacher, Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is God's word. You may be seated. <laughs> I'm glad some of you are uh, jocular this morning. It will make what we have to do next less painful for me. This is the point of Ecclesiastes, right there in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. This is the main point that we are, the first point that we are introduced to in the context of Ecclesiastes, that life's pursuits are meaningless. That's what the preacher says. That's what Kohelet says. Life's pursuits are meaningless. This book of wisdom opens with, with those most encouraging of words. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. The Christian Standard Bible translates this phrase, absolute futility. The New International Version says, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The Hebrew word behind that English word, vanity or futility or meaninglessness, in these several places is the Hebrew word hebel. It means vapor, breath, emptiness. It appears well over 30 times in the book. And if you read it through, you'll notice most of them. And it is the common refrain throughout this whole book of wisdom. Vanity of vanities. Vanities. Everything is meaningless, Kohelet says. Everything. All of it. None of it isn't. Verse 8 of the same chapter, chapter 1, says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot understand it. Verse 14 of chapter 1, Kohelet says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And in case you were inclined not to believe him, you glass half full people, God bless you, we need you. In case you're inclined to disbelieve the author, the the preacher, Kohelet, describes in the chapters that follow no less than six different pursuits in life that are futile, that are vain, that are empty, that amount to nothing. Aren't you encouraged? The first of these is a pursuit of indulgence. The pursuit of indulgence. Here, Kohelet, in chapter 2, He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. He continues in verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold... All was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The preacher, Kohelet, withheld nothing from himself in life. 
He bought it all. He built it all. If there was anything he wanted, he got it for himself. He fulfilled every part of the American dream centuries before there ever was an America. And it was all empty. It was all pointless. It was all meaningless. It amounted to nothing. Friends, here's a hard truth we must hear and listen to. You can have it all. You can do it all. You can buy it all and still have nothing. Now, I know we say that, and I know we intend to mean it. I intend to mean it. But I pray that we would also hear it, listen to it, and heed it. Purpose in life is not found by indulging every appetite. Meaning life is not found in spending every dollar, acquiring all that you can. At the end of the day, Kohelet says, it's all going to blow away. Someone else is going to dispose of it when you're gone. The pursuit of indulgence is meaningless. But so also, Kohelet tells us, is the pursuit of wisdom. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 show this to us. Now, this one came as a bit of a shock to me this week as I was preparing for this sermon this morning. In particular, because last week in our study of Proverbs, we saw how desirable wisdom is and that we should strive to gain wisdom, that we should court wisdom like a lovely lady, that we should try to get as much wisdom as we can in life. And Kohelet did it. Kohelet went after wisdom. He obtained as much as he could. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 13, that he saw that there was value in gaining wisdom because fools are senseless. I don't want to be a senseless fool, so I'm going to get some wisdom. So he went and got himself a bunch of wisdom. And with all his wisdom, do you know what he found? Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and the striving after the wind. Friends, what good is wisdom if the wise and the fool all die the same? That's the question Koheleth is asking. What good is wisdom if even the wise are forgotten within a generation of their death? Or worse, a fool is remembered more highly than the wise man after they die. Wisdom, the preacher teaches us, does not beget life. Just because you're wise doesn't mean you'll live a long time. And it drives Kohelet, the preacher, to hate life. I hated life because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. Everything is vanity, striving after the wind. Now, we know wisdom and attaining wisdom is not all bad. In fact, it's very good. And Kohelet gives wisdom to the reader later in this book, beginning in chapter 12. Wisdom that we're, we're meant to take away and live by. But wisdom itself doesn't bring purpose. doesn't bring meaning. Wisdom doesn't fill life with purposeful pursuit. Wisdom for wisdom's sake is chasing the wind. You can never catch it. You can never fill it all up. I think about many who I I knew when I was going to seminary who were pursuing uh, doctors of philosophy, PhD degrees. And if you know much about a PhD or or most doctoral research research degrees, what those research degrees seek to do is expand the scope of human knowledge now, if you, were to, if you were to imagine all of human knowledge as a, as a, as a circle, right? Just, you know, it, it encompasses all these things. And you were to zoom in like a million times to one point on the edge of that circle. A PhD degree makes a tiny little bump in the edge of that circle. That, that, that's it. It only pushes it out a little bit. There's not a lot under the sun that people haven't studied yet. 
I wonder, now it's not me saying PhD degrees are bad. They're very helpful. Sometimes the little bits of knowledge that, that are expanded are very helpful to us. But if all of your life is bound up in expanding, even in a microscopic bit, the, the total knowledge of the human race, what have you really done? I wonder, are you preoccupied with proving yourself to be wise? Thinking that if you could just know more stuff, then it would give you more meaning for living. If you could just finish that research degree and put this bit of knowledge out there for the world, everything would change. If so, friend, you are striving after a breeze. You are chasing the wind. That is, if you're searching that for a purpose, for meaning in life, that is vanity of vanities. Life's pursuits are meaningless. The pursuit of indulgence is meaningless. The pursuit of wisdom is meaningless. Even work Kohelet tells us, is meaningless. Perhaps you're tempted to think, well, if seeking wisdom is meaningless, maybe, maybe work, maybe toil, maybe labor will be the fix. If I'll just put myself to building something that will last, if I can find the right kind of work, the right kind of labor, and if I can build something of value, build a legacy, build a building that'll be around a long time after I'm dead, then I'll have purpose. That will give me meaning in life. That sure sounds a lot like our career-obsessed age, I think. We ask our children, what are you going to be when you grow up? That's really a question about what kind of work will you do? How will you identify yourself by your occupation, young child? It's like asking your child, how will you prove yourself meaningful once you quit mooching off of your parents? That's really what we want to know. We ask our kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? So we can make plans about how long we're going to have to feed them. I have bad news, friends. Even work meaningless. Kohelet says in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Hear him again in chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. The only reason we work hard is because we want the stuff that our neighbor has. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. I think if the writer of Ecclesiastes were to pen this book today in the year 2021, he might say something like, I put myself to working hard, 60, 80, 100 hours a week. I built companies. I expanded franchises. I built my dream home with my own hands. I authored dozens of entrepreneurship books. I applied for every promotion, and I got every promotion. I gave it all for my career. And when I am done, the next guy will take over. He'll run it into the ground, and that's when I realized all my work is really for nothing. Does this sound like you? Seriously. Even if in some small way, does this sound like you? Are you thinking, young person, maybe even older person, if I can just land the right job, if I can just figure out what I'm going to do with my time in college, if I can just get the right career straightened out, if I can find the job that I'm supposed to do, then everything will be good. Is that you? Let me tell you, if it is, you're pursuing a meaningless pursuit. Work does not give meaning. It does not give purpose to life. Neither does, the Kohel teaches us, wealth and prestige. Those things don't bring purpose and meaning in life either. You may think if work leads to wealth and prestige, if it leads to honor, perhaps then that work accounts for something. 
If I have something to show in my bank account or something to show for my reputation, for all the work that I do, then I'll, I'll, I'll have something in life. I don't work for the sake of working, you say. I don't toil just for the sake of toiling. That's foolish. I work to gain wealth. I work to build my 401k. I work to leave an inheritance for those who will come behind me. I work to prove to other people that I'm the best worker that ever worked in this work ever. Or perhaps your mindset is like that famous song of the 1990s, If I Had a Million Dollars. I won't sing it to you. No, don't, I, you don't want me to sing it. If I had a million dollars, the singers say, I could, I could buy all kinds of things. A new house, a fur coat for my girlfriend. I could even buy her love. This is the case of the preacher, of Kohelet. He had everything. He had enough wealth to indulge his every appetite. We saw that in chapter 2. And we hear his reflection on all that wealth. Hear what he says, chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also, you guessed it, vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. That is to say, when, when more money comes into my house, all of a sudden there's a whole lot more people to feed. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he laments, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Now, we all like to play the game of determining what we would do if we had great wealth. Who hasn't? We see those, those massive multi-billion dollar Powerball jackpots and we think, if I had that money, if I had that kind of money, man, all the stuff I could do, all the, the, the desires that I could satisfy in my life, all of the things that I could buy, even all the stuff I could give away, we all play that game. We play the game of the song, if I had a million dollars, I could do it all. I could really enjoy life then, then I would really have it. And Kohelet jumps in to remind us of another song from the 1990s by rap icon Notorious B.I.G., Mo Money, Mo Problems. <laughs> Which the common refra- the refrain of that song is, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. I hate to tell Notorious B.I.G., but Kohelet beat him to it by centuries. Wealth and prestige, wealth and honor are meaningless worthless pursuits they are not worth giving your life to they will not bring you purpose in and of themselves don't pursue them our author tells us surely then there must be something okay not 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 indulgence not not wisdom not work not wealth or prestige these things don't but perhaps perhaps just life The process of life, the journey of life, and even of death. Perhaps there's meaning in life and death. Surely there's there's the the destination is not a destination, as some say. The the journey is the destination, right? Life and death, that's where meaning is. Really living and really dying, right? Wrong. Chapter 3 begins with uh, the inspiration for that famous song by the birds. I also will not sing this to you. That song, turn, turn, turn. If I sang it, you would know it. But hear what the author says. For everything there is a season and a time for everything under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. On and on and on he goes. And chapter 3 begins to sound nice at first. 
You're like, yeah, that, that, that would make for a good song. That is kind of catchy. I get it. There's seasons for everything until you really read all of it. A time to be born and a time to die. Yeah, sounds so good so far. A time to plant and a time to reap. Yeah, that's about that's agriculture. That's what we do. I'm with you. A time to kill? Well, wait a minute, Kohelet. A time to hate? A time for war, he says? Hold on a second. I thought God said you shall not murder. I thought God said you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're saying that there's a time to kill and a time for war? What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that our friend Kohelet is saying... All this stuff comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes. And so what? The time to plant keeps coming. The time to reap keeps coming. Babies are born. Old people die. There's a time of peace. There's a time of war. There's a time where people are healed and there's a time where people go out killing people. It comes and goes and comes and goes. What's the point? He goes on in chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, trying to make sense of the injustice of life. When wicked men go free and blameless men die in the streets, and he says effectively, life and death and the process of it all is meaningless. There's no purpose in it. He says in chapter 3, beginning of verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Friend, if you're looking for purpose in life, in living, even in dying, that I'm part of this grand cosmic pattern, and that's where the meaning is. Kohelet says, not even close. Because there's nothing that differentiates you and the cycles of living and dying in your life from the animals, from the beasts of the earth and the living and dying that they go through. So if you're looking for meaning in life, meaning for life in life, or meaning for life in death, Kohelet says it's not even there. Sure, it's all vain, it's all empty, it's all pointless. I get it, you say. But at least in life, I'm not alone, right? Perhaps there are friends, family, people of close relationship who can, who can bring purpose and meaning into my life. Maybe the pursuit of purpose is found in those relationships and friendships. At least I've got them to help me through it. Not so fast, Kohelet says. Even friends will let you down. The beginning of chapter 4 bemoans the absence of friends in the life of one who is oppressed. Kohelet says there is no one to comfort them. There's no one to comfort those who are oppressed. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 saying, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who had no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, I'm not saying all friends are worthless or all family are worthless. I'm certainly not saying that. And I'm not saying that friendships are meaningless. But brothers and sisters, if you are hoping that having a friend, that having close family, that having a spouse, that having children will somehow bring you purpose and meaning in life, look elsewhere. No one wants to be near to the enemy of the king. And even the king himself often lies alone in bed at night, Koheleth will bemoan. Friends fail us. Family members fail us. Children disappoint us. Spouses make us angry. Pursuing friendships, pursuing deep relationships for purpose in life is another vanity of vanities and a chasing after the wind, Kohel says. So how then, you ask, 
how can this wise man, Kohelet the preacher, the king in Israel, how, how can he come to this conclusion that life is so pointless, so empty, so unfulfilling? What is the problem that Kohelet is pointing to? Why is life meaningless? Life is meaningless because sin is the problem. Life's pursuits are pointless, purposeless, because sin lies at the root of it all. This is the undeniable reality of Ecclesiastes. And we mentioned this as we began, that these many pursuits of our lives are, they're not meaningless because God is somehow a cranky old curmudgeon who hates humanity. That's not why these pursuits are meaningless. These pursuits are meaningless. We cannot fill up our lives with purpose because we are wicked. That's what Kohelet tells us. That's why everything's empty, because we're wicked. There is no one who does good and never sins, Kohelet says in chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. Hear what he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Verse 29 of that same chapter, See, this alone I found, the wise man says, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the grim reality that we must face. And that Ecclesiastes puts dead center in front of us. Life is full of futility because we all sin. That's why it's empty. Wealth, work, friendships, wisdom, life, death. These are all pointless pursuits because no one does good and never sins. From our first parents, Adam and Eve, down to every soul in this building this morning, we have all rejected this glo- the glorious design and intention for life that God has given to us, and instead we've sought our own way. There is no one who does good and never sins. We were made by God to delight in God, and we have all traded our delight for God for delighting in our bodily appetites. We take the work that's meant to bring creation under our control for the glory of God and we make it about achieving wealth. We take the godly design for sexual intimacy between a covenantally married man and woman and we make it about pursuing porn and illicit affairs and trying to fill our every appetite with more and more grave pursuits. We take life itself and we rob it of all meaning declaring that we know that life is just a happy accident of chance in billions of years of evolution and we burgle from humanity any real and transcendent reality grounded in our Creator. Why are all these things meaningless and pointless? Because we're full of sin and wickedness. We take all of God's good designs, we pervert them, we invert them, we turn them upside down, we make them about pursuing ourselves and pleasing ourselves, and in all the pursuits to please ourselves, we find nothing. Life seems pointless, friends, because we pursue pointless things. We sin. We defy God's good design and we ignore His gracious provision. Sin is the problem. And now that I've got you ready to quit life altogether, <laughs> I offer to you the solution to meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes. What's the solution to meaninglessness, to pointlessness? Surely, Kohelet isn't going to lead us all the way to the edge of the cliff only to push us over. And he doesn't. The solution to all of this is worship. The solution to meaninglessness, the solution to pointlessness, the solution to the the futile pursuits of our hearts is worship. And we would be misreading this book to leave out the very positive conclusions that Kohelet comes to about this life. And he does come to several positive conclusions, and he gives them to us in summary form at the end of the book. 
Look at chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. This is how he closes the book. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard, he says. This is the end of it. I've said all that I need to say. Now here comes the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is a solution to the pointlessness that our sin brings to the world. This is the way to meaning. This is the way to life. This is the way to purpose. And it's all here for us in the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. First of all, fear God. Fear God. We saw last week that fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And here it's the conclusion that Kohelet comes to about finding purpose, finding meaning in life. Fear God, worship Him, live in awe and wonder of His might. Ecclesiastes 3.14 says that this is why God does all that He does, so that we can know Him through worship. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14, Kohelet says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. He says at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, remember also, speaking to younger generations, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Kohelet says, you want meaning? You want purpose? You want want a point to life? Fear God. Worship him. He's the author. He's the source. He's the beginning. He's the designer of it all. So worship him. Start there. And then keep his commands. Fear God and keep His commands. Worship of God leads us to love God and to love what God loves. When we see God and and, and truly delight in Him for all of His holiness, for all of His perfection, for all that, that He is in and of Himself, it leads us to not just love God, but to love the things that God loves. And do you know what God loves? He loves holiness. He loves righteousness. He loves generosity. God loves grace and mercy. And we are meant to find meaning and purpose in life by obeying God's commands, by living out a reflection of God's own character that we've come to know through worship of Him. Ecclesiastes 8.5 says, Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. That's a bit of a word for wisdom, but also as we see that through the lens of looking at God and worshiping God, keeping God's commands, if we live as God has designed for us to live, we will know no evil thing because we will love righteousness, we will love holiness, and we will do those things and pursue those things. And the wise heart will know the right thing to do in the just way. Do you want meaning? Do you want purpose? Fear God. Keep His commands. And third, enjoy His gifts. Enjoy His gifts. When we come to worship God and live by His commands, reflecting His character in the world and the way that we live, we're meant to find all that we have, and we're meant to find that even all that we lack are gifts from God's hand. Did you know that? Everything you have in life is from God's, own, God's provision to you. And everything that you don't have in life is also God's provision to you. And Ecclesiastes calls us to delight in those things in all that God has given and to delight in all that God has held back, to delight in the fact that God has not given it because he has not yet seen fit that we need it. When we worship God and we see the world this way, that everything ultimately belongs to God and he has given some of it into our care and to enjoy, then we can actually enjoy the small pleasures that God does give in those things. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 through 26, listen. Kohelet says, There is nothing better for a person 
than than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. It's vanity and a striving after the wind to gather and collect without a heart of worship toward God, without enjoying the gifts that God has given, only to give those things over to someone else who will. Chapter 5, verse 19, the author of Ecclesiastes says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Where is meaning? Where is purpose? Where is the end of futility in life? Kohelet, the wise author, says it's in this, fearing God, keeping his commands, and enjoying his gifts. Ecclesiastes, though, for all the wisdom that is found in its conclusion, is not yet complete. It's not yet complete unless we go one step further. We can actually miss the wisdom of Ecclesiastes if we don't step forward in time and step forward in our Bibles to look for Christ in Ecclesiastes. Jesus, who is the yes and amen to every one of God's promises to his people, is is the ultimate substance. He is the ultimate end end point. He is the destination that Ecclesiastes serves as a signpost to. So if we don't find ourselves yet to Christ in Ecclesiastes, we haven't done it all yet. Because you you can have a reverence for God. You can live a holy life. You can enjoy all the things that God gives you, not have Christ, and still have nothing. You hear The yes and amen to all of God's promises, Christ is the fulfillment of Ecclesiastes. He's the end of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. So so then how does Christ fill out our understanding of this wonderful book of wisdom? How does Jesus bring a full understanding to, to God's wisdom to his people in Ecclesiastes? Where do we discover Christ in this book? First, in this way knowing that sin is the problem, knowing that the fall is is really what's behind all of life's meaningless pursuits, and knowing that all of us are contributors to it. There is not one of us who has ever done good and never sinned. We look to Jesus, who is the righteous man, who does do good, and who did not ever sin, who never sinned. We saw in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's no man who does good and never sins. We know from uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those statements are exclusively true for everyone except for one. And that one for whom those statements are not true is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is fully human, born of woman. He knew all of human life the way that we do, except for one thing. He never sinned. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 15, says this about Jesus We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. There is one who does good and never sins. He is Jesus. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. He never once gave in to selfish ambition. He never once pursued a vain attempt at indulgence. Jesus always honored the Father and always did the Father's will. He never fell short of the glory of God. He did what we cannot do so that he would prove to be God's loving answer to our sin. The problem is sin in Ecclesiastes. What's God's answer to it? We don't necessarily get that in Ecclesiastes, but we move forward in Scripture and we do find it in Jesus. As we see in this book of wisdom, sin is our problem. The solution is worship of God. That's good. But the question for the worshiper of God ought to be, how do I do that? 
How do I fear God? How do I keep his commands? How do I enjoy all of his good gifts? Where do I start? How can I get to know God? How can I get to God? The Bible's answer, God's answer to us is Jesus. He is God's loving answer to our sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, not when we had cleaned ourselves up just enough and had proven ourselves worthy and had done a few good things and demonstrated our ability to uh, contribute to the kingdom of God in different ways. No, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Know this this morning, fellow sinner. God has not given up on you. Though you may have pursued every empty attempt at manufacturing purpose in your life, only to be left empty-handed and broken-hearted, God has pursued you with an undying and an unbounded love. He has sent Christ Jesus, His Son, to live the sinless life you couldn't and to die your death for sins. And He calls you now. Find purpose. Find meaning. Find life in Christ who was risen from the grave to renew God's purpose for your life, to lead you into a relationship of delightful worship of God. Trust Jesus. Give Him your sin. Give Him your sorrow. Give Him your hurts. He can bear them. He has borne them on the cross in His body. He died to pay the penalty for your sin as a demonstration of God's love for you, sinner. You want purpose? You want meaning? God has given you the path to it. It's in Jesus. He is God's loving answer to our sin. The author of Ecclesiastes sought purpose and abundant life and all the things that he could attain for himself. But Jesus says to us in John chapter 10 that the thief comes only to kill and to steal and destroy. Kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Do you want life that overflows with meaning and purpose and purposefulness? Find it in Jesus. He alone gives it. Find it in him. Third, we see that Jesus is that son of David who rules as the only wise king. Ecclesiastes 1 says, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, we know that the son of David is, is not just a term for a biological son, but the term son of David is a term for one who's in the line of David, who has a rightful claim to the throne in Jerusalem and over all things ultimately we know from Ecclesiastes 1.1 that Kohelet is a king. He's a son of David who flails about his whole long life trying to find wisdom and meaning. And this flailing, faltering king, Kohelet, causes us to cry out, to yearn for not another flailing king, but for a faithful king. Another son of David, a better son of David, who will not falter. Matthew tells us in his gospel, the first verse of Matthew's gospel, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one with a rightful claim to the throne, the one who will rule as the, as the only wise king. And we know from, again, from Hebrews chapter one, verses three and four, that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of God, the father as the only wise king over all things. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews one, verse three, he speaking of Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Ecclesiastes teaches us 
that life's pursuits are meaningless. But know this, life is not meaningless. These years that we live out are not meant to be without purpose. It was never part of God's design that our whole lives would be spent in futile pursuits. But we will miss the meaning of life altogether if we seek it in empty places and in empty pursuits. There is a purpose for your life, friend. It is to know God and to be known by Him. You come to know Him by turning from the problem of your sin and trusting in Christ who makes you clean. Know this, brothers and sisters, there is a King who is truly wise and always holy, who never flails, who never falters, who gave Himself to make you whole and who gave Himself to make you holy too. There's wisdom in Jesus. Find it in Him. There's purpose in Jesus. Find it in Him. Find this morning the solution to your sin and the solution to your every vain and empty pursuit for meaning in life. Find the solution to it in Jesus. In just a moment, we'll have a time to remember all that our King Jesus, the only wise one, did to purchase that meaning and purpose in life for us. This morning, in in just a little bit, we will take together the Lord's Supper, this little bit of bread that we eat, this cup that we drink together, symbolizing Jesus' body, which was broken for us, His blood, which was spilled for us to bring forgiveness uh, forgiveness of sins to everyone who trusts in Him. We have the, the delightful privilege to remember all that Christ did to bring meaning and purpose to our broken, sinful lives in His death for sins and His resurrection from the grave. This meal that we'll take together, the Lord's Supper, as we remember Christ and what he's done and also look forward to his return. This is a meal that's for Christians. It's a meal for those who have trusted Jesus that way. It's meant to be taken together by the whole gathering of the church as often, whenever they do gather uh, by brothers and sisters in faith to reflect on, to remember well, and to worship Christ who died for us and rose again. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus as, as we are, if you've not yet trusted him by, uh, by faith as the sacrifice for your sins who rose from the dead, we would just invite you to refrain from taking this meal this morning because in taking it, you would profess a faith that you don't yet have and we don't want to make you dishonest. Instead, we invite you to look around and see the many lives of those in this room who have trusted Jesus, who've given their life over to him, who've repented of sin, who've been baptized as uh, as believers by immersion in water to signify our own death to sin and, and being raised to new life. Parents, grandparents, if you have young children with you this morning who have not yet made a public profession of faith in Christ through baptism, uh, we'd ask you to help, help them to refrain from taking this meal as well because if they took it, they would be professing a faith that they do not yet have. And so we don't want to make them dishonest either. Instead, parents and grandparents, use this as an opportunity to point your children one more time to Jesus who died for their sins and was raised from the dead. Use this as an opportunity to preach the gospel to your kids and pray that God would bring, bring fruit of faith in it. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we'll sing a, a few verses of a song just to reflect and prepare our hearts to share in this meal together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Let's pray together.